0: Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The gospel lesson that we heard this morning comes from a part of the gospel of Mark where Jesus has finished the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rode in on uh, the colt of a donkey. They sang their hallelujahs and waved their palm branches, their lulabs, they spread their cloaks. They reenacted the ninth chapter of Zechariah. Here comes your king, humble and lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There they came into Jerusalem. And it would not have been lost on anybody in Jerusalem what they were doing. They were reenacting the triumphal entry of God's chosen one, not as a conquering king, but as a humble and lowly servant. He looked around, he went home, he came back the next day on the way into the temple, he cursed a fig tree and then he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. Then the third day they came back and the fig tree that he had cursed had been withered to the roots. The curse that he offered to the fig tree was, may no one ever bear fruit from you again, because it was not the season for figs, and so it didn't provide any figs for him. Seems like a strange thing for Jesus to do. Until you understand that in his triumphal entry, Jesus was reenacting something that on the calendar of the church took place during the Festival of Booths. It was a a play that they put on every year during the Festival of Booths. And this was Passover. It wasn't the season for Messiahs when Jesus came to Jerusalem. And so he gets to Jerusalem and he sees the money changers all over the place. Not ready to receive their Messiah. Messiah but instead turning out the business of the church, turning out the the business of the temple, turning out the business of the faithful. The fig tree is a parable for all of us to understand that we must be ready at any moment to receive the Lord when he comes to us. That our expectations are that Jesus will not only come, but he will come according to the ways that we decide and according to the predictions that we have made. Jesus came when Jesus came. And they were not ready. It was not the season for Messiahs. And so now he stays in the temple for a few days. And by this time, he's managed to basically anger all the people who plan worship and anger all the people who are theologians and and anger just about everyone. First, the temple officials The rulers and the authorities came and they questioned Jesus, and he fended off their questions. Back and forth they went, and at the end of it, they had no further answers for him. Then the Pharisees came and they had their own questions for Jesus, and he answered well, and he was able to withstand. And they left with nothing else to say. Then came the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection, and they, they tried to chip, trip Jesus with some question about how many wives will a man have if, uh, if he uh, dies and his wife has to marry the brother according to the law and, and then so on and so forth. Who will, who will be married to whom in heaven? It was a trick question. It was a, what a hypothetical question. The kind of question you hear in debates all the time. Well, what if this happened to you? Or what if that happened to you? What if somebody broke into your home? What would you do about it? Well, so far no one's broken in. I don't know what I would do at the time. Jesus recognized that since they do not believe in a resurrection, they didn't even want an answer about the resurrection. They were just trying to trip him up and he answered them Well, And then there was this scribe. We don't know his name. He was a lawyer, an official who had knowledge of the laws of God. Most likely was raised in a fairly affluent home. Most likely when he was there as a child and he would listen to his father and his uncles having dinner and having their conversations and he would sit at a distance and he would hear the conversations that you and I hear today. We need a stronger national defense because we are being set in on every side and we need to raise up an army to kick the Romans out. And then somebody across the table tears off a hunk of bread and he dips it in the soup and he says, I think you're wrong. Charity begins at home and we need a more prosperous education system and if we raise our people right and back and forth the, the arguments go and he sits and he listens and he wonders what is the truth and this child grows up and he's trained in the law he's trained in the 613 precepts that are that are considered the essence of the law And he's watched how the Pharisees take the bits and pieces of the law and they spill them out onto the table and they gather up fragments of Scripture. And as long as there is a connecting word, as long as there is a connecting word, you can take a fragment from a prophet and a fragment from the writings of Moses and you can put them together and create a new precept or a new principle. And all you need is a connecting word. And this is how the law is interpreted in the time of this scribe. And I wonder if he, as a child, wanted to know the ins and the outs and the deep mysteries of all the faith. And I wonder if all of the the business side that was going on in the temple had disillusioned him a, a bit. I picture him in my mind and I see him sitting there in the porch of Solomon trying to find some shade in the afternoon, idly picking up stones and throwing them off and wondering at the commotion as Jesus comes in and standing at the edge of the crowd as Jesus is fending off his questioners and at the end finding his heart start to race like your heart will race when you know you're going to say something in a group and you begin to get sweaty palms and you, you just can't hold it anymore and in any longer and you blurt it out master i see that you're answering well what is the greatest law Spill the Torah out for me. Gather it up for me. Tell me what is the greatest law. And Jesus pulls down two fragments of Scripture. One from Deuteronomy. One that this young man and every other righteous Jew would have been saying for two centuries before the time of Jesus. Every morning and every night. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. The Lord is. Is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus adds, with all your mind. With the totality of who you are, you shall love the Lord. By the way, strength in the time of Jesus was not only the power that we have to do 50 push ups. That it stood for our wealth and our holdings and everything about us. It was our impact in the world, in the physical world around us. With the seat of our emotions, with the soul within us, with all of our mind and its ability to comprehend, and with all the strength and power that we can muster, we divert that to the Lord, and we love the Lord with everything we have. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6. And then from Leviticus. Remember the stranger in the midst of you, the aliens. Do not forsake them, for you were once aliens in a strange land. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two. Fragments of scripture that you, my friend, already know hang all the law and the prophets, said Jesus. And the scribe said, Master, you're right. Teacher, you're right. This is the essence to love God, to love the eternal, to love the mysterious, to love. That immense expanding idea of God with everything you've got, and to then make it real and intimate and flesh and blood by loving our neighbor. This is is the essence of all of it. Did you hear what Jesus did? did? Did you hear the connecting word between these two verses? that allowed Jesus to put them together according to the traditions of how the Jews in Jesus' day interpreted scripture, there was one word in these two sentences that hooks them together. Did you hear it? It was love. You shall love. You shall love. There's no other word we can listen to today it's election week, and you shall love. It's charge conference week, and dear God, you shall love. <laughs> you shall love. You shall love. Now, not, not try to love, not hope that someday love finds its way to your door, but you shall will yourself to be loving toward God and toward your neighbors. You shall love and you shall love, and you shall love again. You shall build love as the foundation of your life. You shall love. And the scribe in his head says, Master, you answered well. You answered well. And Jesus turned and looked at him, looked him dead in the eye and said, And you are not far from the kingdom of God. The founder of our faith, our Methodist tradition, once wrote a sermon in England, delivered it to his peers, which he titled The Almost Christian. And he went on to describe the premier citizen of London at that time, and the most charitable, the most distinguished, the most intellectually uh, accomplished, the, the, the one with the most prowess and the... And the most righteous pattern of living, he described this person to a T and then in the middle of the sermon and said, yet yeah, for all of these qualities and all these benefits, this man is merely an almost Christian and not an altogether Christian. Wow. The first time I let my eyes pour over that sermon, it stunned me. You mean all this time trying to be an athlete, trying to be an Eagle Scout, trying to be this, trying to be that, trying to be the other? Does all of that count for nothing? No, it doesn't count for nothing. It puts you right in the neighborhood, but at the end of the day, with Paul, you have to say, I count all of that stuff as rubbish when I compare it with the higher calling of Christ and the promise of that upward call in Him. You're not far. In our citizenship, in our accomplishments, in our careful stewardship, we're not far from the kingdom. But what is it that brings us all the way home? It is the love of God. Shed abroad in every fiber of our being. I don't know how it is for you, but when somebody's coming at me and they just know what my buttons are and they just have wrinkled my prunes for the last time, I, I find myself rising up with every other emotion except love. And sometimes I find a word flying from my lips, and I know the minute it's flown from my lips, it felt really good to say it, but it was not love. You ever had that happen to you? You ever lashed out? You ever lost it for a minute? Sure you did, it was on the freeway in the third lane yesterday. You know what I'm talking about. We give ourselves a pass on these things every day. There's only one thou shalt in this whole whole entire passage and that thou shalt is that thou shalt love. And the pattern of that love, like how much do I love? That's the pattern right there on that table. This is how much we are meant to love. To be like Jesus. To give of ourselves until there's nothing left to give. Knowing that God has a supply of love that's coming to us that's of infinitely greater ability, of a greater supply than our ability to use it up. And we celebrate these saints who lived in our midst Today. Not for their accomplishments in the world, but for the fact that they they are encapsulated in the love of Christ. That a part of these saints is in Jesus Christ. And a part of us is in Jesus Christ too. And we have communion together on the basis of his love for us and for the world. And that's what we celebrate today. Others will be concerned about our reputations and our resumes. Jesus is after our hearts. And so as we come to this communion, I simply invite you to examine your life, to look at the things that you place your trust in, and ask, am am I not far from the kingdom, or have I come in? Have I opened the door? Have I decided this day that love shall rule in every circumstance? Will I serve the love of God so that the love of God may pour through me? In Jesus' name, amen.